Welcome, First Friends Church family. We are so glad to have you tuning in because here at First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving Him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. One of the best ways to strengthen our faith is by diving into the Word of God together during our Sunday gatherings. So if you don't have a church family, we would love to have you join us. All there is to know as you plan your visit can be found at firstfriends.org. Now let's go to our lead pastor, Nathaniel, with this week's message. In Brazil, in the church that I was serving there, we would often have people stop by the church that were in need. Um, Not people that were part of the congregation, but because of where our church was situated, there were a lot of people uh, who had various needs of many kinds. And our church actually had a, a gate, but then there was a doorbell. So during the week, the doorbell would ring. We would have contact with different people. And one of the biggest challenges was discerning uh, which of these people were sharing legitimate needs and which ones had crafted a story uh, in order to manipulate and gain help that, I'm not saying they didn't necessarily need it, but gain it in a way that was manipulative. There was one individual that I had developed some relationship with He had come to the church numerous times. He always had some specific financial need, and we would talk about the gospel together. I'd pray for him. Um, Usually we would help him with whatever that financial need was. This man had a physical deformity, had a severe limp um, that made it very awkward for him to walk. One day, after having had interactions with this individual over the course of several years, as I went back into the church building and he set off down the sidewalk, Uh, and turned the corner, I had thought of something else that I wanted to say to him. So I ran after him, and I I turned the corner, and he was walking away from me with no limp. (laughs) Healing, right there. You know, I like to think that I can see through manipulation. But the truth is, it's probably not too hard to manipulate me. But unlike me, it's impossible to manipulate God. And this truth is going to be clearly illustrated to us in the third chapter of Jonah. The theme of this series is you can't block God. Jonah has tried to block God's will by running away from him. He's tried to block God's will and God's mercy by refusing to repent. And in this chapter, He's going to try to block God's will and God's mercy by manipulating God. If you don't have a hard copy Bible and you would like to borrow one for the rest of the service, the ushers are coming back down the aisles right now, and they have a copy. And if you just raise your hand, they'll be glad to give you one, and you can follow along. Uh, Additionally, I would add, if you don't own a copy, just receive this as a gift from us and take it and keep it and read it. The book of Jonah is hard to find. As you've heard me say before, we we call it a book. It's really more of just a a short story. It's just two pages long. Uh, Your best bet is probably to look in the table of contents if you're unfamiliar with the Bible as a book, and you will find there where Jonah is, and then you can turn to that page. I'll be reading Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. 
Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. As I often like to do with narrative accounts in the Bible, I want to break this one up into six scenes, scenes that will build upon each other to reveal that God's plan and more specifically God's mercy can never be manipulated. Scene one I call second chances. The first verse of Jonah chapter three, it echoes verse one of chapter one. The word of the Lord comes to him, but this is the only time in all scripture that we have a record of this phrasing specifically, the word of God coming to so-and-so a second time. So same message, but a second time. And this highlights, again, God's mercy. I'm sure that those of you who have any loyalty to Ohio State, I'm sorry, the Ohio State University at all, will actually probably remember quite fondly Chris Weber's 1993 timeout for Michigan in the NCAA Division I Men's Basketball Championship Finals when he called a timeout that his team did not have. And that led, ultimately, to Michigan losing. You can cheer if you want to. That's all right. And I've read interviews with Chris Webber about that event because even though he had a very successful NBA career following that, he will always be known as the college player who in the finals called a timeout that his team didn't have, which led ultimately to their losing the national title. I am certain that Chris Webber would love a redo, a second chance, a chance to go back and not call that timeout a chance to make the pass instead of making this symbol. But God, on the other hand, is a God of second chances. There may not be second chances when it comes to timeouts, but there is our second chances in the mercy of God. All our lives are a series of second chances because we were all born into sin. So we're all born with our first chance already burned. Jonah does not deserve a second chance to submit and surrender to the will and mission of God. He doesn't deserve another opportunity to be used by God. 
and to know that joy of the power of God flowing through him in ministry to others. He doesn't deserve that, but God is merciful. And his word comes to Jonah a second time. And once again, God gives Jonah a message that he's supposed to take to the population of Nineveh. Now, we're not given details as to the content specifically of that message. And we weren't given the details in chapter 1 either, but we assume that it's probably a similar, if not the exact same message. And by entrusting this message a second time to Jonah, God is giving him another opportunity to join God's mission in the world to show that he, Jonah, has indeed had a change of heart and attitude. Scene two, I call obedience. And yes, that question mark is intentional. Jonah obeyed. Now, this is a very short scene, and I won't take much time on it, but it's important to point out that in the original Hebrew, the word obeyed is not present. The ESV, the English Standard Version, and some other more recent translations of Jonah, excuse me, they render a more accurate word-for-word translation, which would read like this, and Jonah went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, that might seem like a small thing, but it isn't, because I'm going to argue that Jonah did not go obediently to Nineveh, because obedience is both outward and inward. And Jonah went to Nineveh, I'm convinced, kicking and screaming. Initially, he ran from God in the opposite direction, and though he goes now, he, I'm sorry, he ran from God in the opposite direction, and he even tried to foil God's plan, right, by drowning himself and taking himself out of the equation, but all of his efforts are fruitless. Then the fish comes, swallows him, eventually vomits him out. I think Jonah thought the whole Nineveh thing was over, but then God's word comes to him a second time. He's like, man, I haven't escaped. I haven't waited God out. And now he's telling me to do this again. After all, he saved my life. This fish, miracle, incredible. And now he's telling me to do it again. I think Jonah feels cornered. And though he goes, he does not go submissively and obediently. And I think that's going to be played out for us in chapter 4. We're going to recognize that. Jonah never goes to Nineveh with a submissive, willing spirit. And I just emphasize again that obedience to the Lord True obedience always involves attitude and action, body and heart. I've illustrated this before, that idea of the, the child who is told by their parents um, to go close the door. And, you know, the kid's sitting there doing, I don't know, playing a video game, doing something they enjoy doing. They don't want to be interrupted. The, the parent says, do it now. And they get up and they, you know, slouch across the room and then just slam the door with all their might and then go back to their game. On the one hand, we could say, well, there was an action of obedience, but the question is, was that obedience? Again, because obedience will involve both attitude and action. Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he goes according to the word of the Lord. In other words, compelled by the word of the Lord, but he doesn't go obediently, and he doesn't go submissively. Scene three I call the big city. This is in verse 3. Jonah finally arrives in Nineveh. This has kind of been the apex. This is kind of apparently where this whole account is headed, is Nineveh, right? The great nemesis 
of the nation of Israel, the capital city of the dreaded and despised Assyrian Empire. We don't exactly know what the phrase three days to go through it means. Um, That's what the author of Jonah has for us. That's to describe the size of Nineveh. Most likely, it means that it would take three days to walk most of its streets and neighborhoods. In chapter 4, we're going to be told that the population of Nineveh was around 120,000, which for the day was astronomical. It was quite the megalopolis in the ancient Near East. Scene 4. I think this chapter in, in, in many ways hinges on this scene. And I call it unfair edits. We need to examine the actual message that Jonah delivered to Nineveh. In Hebrew, it's just five words long. And in English, as you can see there, if you are capable of counting, eight, eight words long. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. One other important translation note here, the Hebrew uses a present perfect verb form. So even though the event of Nineveh's destruction is in the future, Jonah expressed it as a completed reality. And we wouldn't translate it in, like this way in English because it sounds awkward to our ears. But this is what he said, 40 days and Nineveh is destroyed. Or 40 days and Nineveh is overthrown. So imagine that I tell one of my sons, when they were younger, of course, go tell your brother that if he doesn't stop making all that noise in the next room, he's going to be grounded for a week. So my son dutifully goes into the next room and tells his brother, dad says, you're going to be grounded for a week. On the one hand, the words he said were my words. On the other hand, he clearly and intentionally did not convey the full message. He chose the part of the message that he liked the most. Ha 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 ha, dad's gonna ground little brother. Because the message that I sent in its entirety was intended to change behavior, not just convey punishment. And this is what I believe the evidence of the text shows us about Jonah and what he preached in Nineveh because the author is very clear about exactly what Jonah said. But he's not clear specifically about what message God gave him to share. It was an unfairly edited version of God's original message because, why? There was no call for repentance no call for changed behavior or offer of mercy, no pointing to God. He did not even tell them why they would be destroyed. He didn't tell them to whom to repent. He didn't even acknowledge repentance as an option. He gave them no hope at all. And here's the point. Jonah tried to manipulate God. He went through the message God had given him, and he chose the part that he liked. Ooh, destruction, yes. That, that I can get on board with. That I can preach. And so his thinking is is like this. This is the word of the Lord that I'm proclaiming to you. Forty more days, and Nineveh is destroyed. Done deal. It is the word of the Lord, um, and he can justify it himself because God actually said those words. 
Um, and I am God's prophet, right, God? I'm your prophet. You said those words to me. I've proclaimed them now, so now, God, you know, your reputation is at stake. Because you told the people this. So if you go back on that, people are going to think you're untrustworthy and you're weak. So God is going to be forced to carry out what I say. So I suggest that Jonah was one of the first people in recorded history to effect an unfair edit. Scene five, I'm calling a repentance flash mob. Nineveh required three days to travel most of its streets and neighborhoods. And yet, after just one day, said Jonah began by going through the city one day, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed or overturned. But after just one day, the entire population joins in a flash mob of repentance. This is a miracle. This really is a miracle. Any repentance in any soul is a miracle. But this mass repentance can only be explained by God's mercy and God's compassion. And I, I briefly just want to touch on a few aspects of the repentance that we see reflected here in, the, in Nineveh. First of all, this was repentance based on belief. The Ninevites believed God. That was the difference. They believed that the threat of destruction was real and true. And evidence shows by what the king says in his edict that they also understood that their wickedness was extensive. Secondly, their repentance was immediate. A visit to Nineveh took three days, again, right? But after only one day, Jonah's message, the entire city repents. There's no delay in this, although they could have said, and I think this might be something that I would say, 40 days, cool, I've got 39. I've got 39 that I can still enjoy my sin or my perversion or the stuff that I like, and then then I, I, I can repent on day 39 in the 23rd hour. I think I would have been tempted to wait God out, quite frankly. And maybe after that initial wave of, of conviction, you know, I would say, wait, 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 hold off, hold off. Let me, let me see if, if maybe this will settle down and go away. Because none of us really, really, loves the idea of repentance. We don't, we don't want to give up those special idols that, are, that we worship. Idols of, of pleasure or self-focus or whatever they may be. The third uh, unique aspect of, of this repentance is that it was grassroots. You notice the king doesn't hear about it until later on in the story. So the impression we're given is that as soon as people heard this message from Jonah, they began to repent. They were putting on sackcloth. Now when it finally reaches the king, the king then makes it official. So it is covering everybody within the city. But it began as people heard this message that in 40 days they were going to be destroyed. And finally, the fourth aspect it was revealed, this, their repentance, right, was revealed in their actions. They humbled themselves. 
Wearing sackcloth was a, a tradition at the time to demonstrate grief and self-humbling or humiliation. And they sat in the dust and they fasted. According to the king, his edict, they called urgently on God. They gave up their evil ways and their violence. This highlights again the difference between just confession on the one hand and full repentance on the other. Confession is the admission of wrong. Repentance is the turning away from the wrong and turning to the good. So it's possible to confess without repenting. It's not possible to repent without confessing. And sometimes, and I say this because I've, I, I do this, sometimes we seek the catharsis of confession particularly when we're confessing to others. So we know that there's sin, and we confess it because we want that cathartic experience of feeling relieved, but, <clears throat> but without actually turning away from the sin involved. We can see this in Jonah, right, in chapter 1. He gets on the ship, right? And what does he tell the sailors? I'm running away from God. There's a confessional aspect to his words. He's admitting it. He's not hiding it. Yes, I am running away from the Almighty God. And he goes in the opposite direction. He admits the wrong, but he doesn't repent, right? There's no turning to the Lord. Because repentance is internal but always revealed in external action. Um, I've shared with you before that my family and I, uh, through a number of different circumstances, but primarily through uh, discontent, selfishness, and foolishness, we found ourselves in a significant amount of debt. And there were kind of these, these moments along the way where God would kind of shake us up, shake me up, and, and kind of to grab my attention. And in those moments, I would confess. At times, even confess to other people, confess the attitudes that had led us to this point, the decisions that I had made that, that led us to, to have this debt. And those moments were cathartic, right? They, they made me feel relieved. But I would also say there wasn't repentance because... There was no lasting change in my behavior or my practices or my attitudes. By the grace of God, he did bring that repentance. And that's something that we often don't understand is that it's God's mercy that leads us to repentance. Paul says it's, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's judgment is what allows us to go our own way. It's his judgment that says, okay, that's the direction you want to go, go. But it is his mercy that calls us to restoration through repentance. In Matthew 3, 8, we are encouraged, we are exhorted to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, true repentance is going to have outward fruit, visible fruit. 
that can be seen. And that fruit's always going to be, it's going to be inner and outer. The belief and subsequent repentance of the Ninevites provide a backdrop of irony for Jonah himself. There's a literary term called a foil. Many of you may be familiar with that. A foil is a character in literature whose behavior provides a stark contrast to the main character. So either for good or for ill, this character's attitudes, actions, being will cause the other character, the main character, to stand out in one way or another. So there are many foils for Jonah in this account. The sailors are foils for Jonah. The wind is a foil for Jonah. The sea is a foil for Jonah. The fish is a foil for Jonah. And all 120,000 of the Ninevites are foils for Jonah. Why? Because all these other characters in the story are quick to bend and submit to God's will. Only Jonah the prophet is resistant. And we'll see next week that even though Jonah did begrudgingly go to Nineveh, he never produced fruit in keeping with repentance. Scene six, the final scene and the most glorious scene. Unbelievable, remarkable mercy. As we have seen repeatedly through these first three chapters, God's mercy is constantly on display, and he forestalls his judgment against the Ninevites because of, quote, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. It was the actions of these people that revealed their true repentance, and it was this evidence, the fruit, that prompted God's mercy. As we'll see even more clearly next week, Jonah tried his absolute best to block God's mercy to Nineveh. Praise be to God that he failed. Because we all want God's mercy when it relates to ourselves. But we want God's justice toward those that we perceive as having wronged us or hurt us or threatened us. Oh, that's when we, want, we pray God's justice on them. But when it's us, we're always begging for his mercy. So let's apply this. What's amazing in this account is that everyone in the story is a recipient of God's mercy. The sailors, the Ninevites, and even Jonah. But here's the key. We receive the joy of his mercy through repentance. See, Jonah has not... There's no joy in Jonah. We're going to see him at the end of chapter 4, isolated, embittered, angry, hot, and entirely isolated and alone. Even though God has been merciful to him, because he has never come to repentance and he has never received and accepted that mercy, it has brought him no joy. So one point of application, in addition to God's mercy, has to do with Jonah's attempt to manipulate God by editing his message. And although we might be unaware of it, we can also be guilty of trying to manipulate God. Sometimes it's through promises, right? This is pretty common. God, if you do such and such, then I promise that I will do so and so. 
and rather than simply taking steps into obedience to which he's already called us. Another way we do this is, is through editing or, or perhaps we could say misunderstanding or misapplying Scripture or taking it out of context. Philippians 4.14, that's a verse we all love. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We often don't look at the context of that verse. Because that verse does not promise NBA championships. That verse does not promise a promotion at, job, at my job. That verse does not promise that I can become, I can become a millionaire by the time I'm 20. I can do it because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What that verse is talking about in context is Paul saying, you know what, I have learned to be content in any situation that God puts me in. I have learned to be content when I have much, and I have been learned to be content when I have nothing. And I can do these things through Christ who strengthens me. But we take that verse out of context and we say, I'm going to do this. Okay, God, you said it, right? You, this is your word. You said it, and I want to do this so I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. So I used your name and I used your word, so you better, you better do what I want you to do. And maybe another way, these aren't the only ways that we manipulate God, but perhaps the final way or another way that I think is very common is by refusing to forgive to forgive others, right? Because we're, we're so afraid that if we forgive those people who have hurt us so deeply that, that God's going to let them off the hook, that they're not going to get the justice that they deserve, that they're not going to get the punishment, that they're not going to be brought low like they've brought us low. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can keep God's mercy from being poured out on them by us refusing to forgive them. This might be a little bit in line with what Jonah was trying to do. And, and listen, the Assyrians did not deserve God's mercy. That's clear. I'm sorry. Jonah didn't deserve God's mercy. Nobody. That's the point of mercy. That is mercy. It's not deserved. It can't be deserved. By definition. And God is still continuously sending out his merciful call to repentance to all people. And again, we miss that, right? God's call to repentance is merciful. Simply the call is merciful. The fact that God sent Jonah to Nineveh was merciful to the Ninevites. If God had just decided, I'm going to destroy you, why would he have sent anybody to tell them, hey, I'm going to destroy you. You're going to have a miserable 40 days waiting for it to come because there's nothing you can do to forestall my judgment. The Ninevites repented, though, and that was miraculous on many levels, as we've already seen, not least because Jonah's message didn't invite them to repent. They repented because God, in his mercy, convicted them directly and brought them to their knees. You know, and that's a reminder that God doesn't need Jonah. A reminder that God doesn't need us. 
that he can accomplish his purposes without us, and he will. But if we resist his mercy and we resist his call to repentance, we do not have the joy of working with the Almighty God and seeing him do his will and work his will and his miracles through us. So this morning, I want to challenge all of us to see ourselves either as Jonah or as the Ninevites. All of us being called to repentance, all of us being invited to receive the glorious, compassionate mercy of God. Because I do think we all fit into one of these two categories or have at some point in our past. Some of you may be entirely new to the, even to the vocabulary that I'm using this morning. But just know Know that God is merciful. And no matter what kind of mess you have made of your life, he still invites you to come. He still invites you to repent, to say to him, yes, God, I have been wrong. I have sinned. But I'm willing by your power and by your grace to receive your mercy so I can turn away from that sin. The first time that we do that, we call that conversion. We call that a turning away from the world and a turning toward Jesus Christ. And we come to God because Jesus, the Son of God, paid all, for all that brokenness that we've committed, that we've done, that we have. He paid for it on the cross because that that depth of brokenness and that depth of sin can only be remedied through a blood sacrifice. And that's what Jesus has done for us. So if you're, let's put it this way, if you are a Ninevite, so you've never come to repentance in God, see yourself in this story and hear God's invitation to repent for you to be restored to him. Maybe some of you have already previously taken that step to repent initially. But maybe over time, you, you, you do belong to God, but your heart's kind of become hardened like Jonah's for whatever reason it may be. So that the joy of God's mercy is gone, but he's inviting you back to it. Maybe there are those parts of your heart you've taken back. This is my idol. I'm, I'm keeping it. I'm not, I'm not letting it go. And God's saying, if you would just release that to me, you would experience the joy of my mercy. You think that nothing can replace the, the, whatever pleasure you gain from that sin, from that idol, but you have no idea what I have in store for you. If you would come and let it go to me. We are all in need of God's mercy. Will we say yes to it? And this morning, we celebrate communion together. Communion is one of the most vivid ways that the church practices the gift that Jesus gave people on the cross. And this morning, as we receive, I would invite you to consciously 
as you come forward to receive the bread and, and, the, and the juice, remind yourself that you're enacting outwardly an inward yes to the mercy of God. Because that's what was conveyed on the cross, was the mercy of God. And these elements are a sign that point to that individual, invisible truth that the death and resurrection of Jesus gives life, gives life to the one who will receive it. So I would invite those who will be serving at the different tables to come forward now. And I would invite all of us to take just a moment in silence. You can bow your head if you want to. You can close your eyes if you want to or not. But just to simply ask God to prepare your heart for what he has for you. To prepare your heart to say yes to his mercy if there's a specific sin or idol that you need to release and confess to him and so that you receive the joy of his mercy, because he's calling out to you now, then this is an opportunity to do that. If you've never before said to God, I surrender to you, I confess and I repent of my brokenness, my waywardness, my sin, this is your opportunity to do that. Let's be silent in his presence just for a moment. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There, you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30 a.m., and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week!